say I'm crazy Six o'clock, and it's time for the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Glad you are with us as we end the month of April. And of course, the story that is on everyone's mind is in Baltimore, 200 odd miles from where I am in North Jersey. And it is uh, such a, in a way, it's confusing. But in a way, if you step back from it, there are certain truths that I have gleaned. And it's not just from Baltimore. It's actually looking at the history of uprisings in the city of New York anyway, and across the country as well. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting to me to start out with. And by the way, we're going to have at 6.15 our good friend Les Payne, Pulitzer Prize-winning former editor at Newsday. But if you look across violent uprisings in this country. First of all, black folks are not the only people who have, quote, rioted, unquote. You can go back to the draft riots of 1863 when blacks were the victims of violence by Irish citizens who didn't want to fight in the Civil War. They were resisting the draft, and some 200 black people were killed in the street. And as far as I know, no one was ever prosecuted, tried, or convicted. Now, if we want to go back to lynchings, and uh, which, by the way, could be seen as a riot when black people were hung from trees by rampaging groups of whites. But this is not really to grind that axe at this particular time. I step back from what's happening in Baltimore, and I see what, for me, is a fundamental truth. And, uh, you know, it said, uh, actually, I think there is a march that is going on. I think it started at 530 uh, with college kids walking through Baltimore. And there were high school kids walking through Baltimore protesting as well. I don't know that there's been any violence associated with these current marches. If I find out anything, I will certainly let you know. But there's one thing that seems to be almost an immutable truth here. And that's this. On the one hand, violent protests don't work. They simply do not work. They actually end up, and you can see from what's going on now, they end up not changing anything. All right? And and there have been violent uprisings in communities, both black and white, for actually a couple centuries at this point. Now, you may make the argument that previously, violent protests did create change, but not now. There have been street violence, there's been street violence in Ferguson, Missouri, street violence in Baltimore, and it doesn't change the fundamental issue of police 
killing unarmed citizens. It hasn't done it because it keeps happening. Now, here's the second part of this. And I know some of y'all are going to disagree with me about this, but it, for me, is immutable. And that is that, yes, the civil rights movement and its nonviolent protests did, in fact, accomplish a lot. But has nonviolent protest honestly dealt with the issue of police violence against unarmed citizens? It's still happening. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, they shouldn't happen, nonviolent protests, or that there's something wrong with them. All I'm saying is it hasn't worked. People are still getting injured and killed on the street. And, you know, you look at Baltimore, you look at North Charleston, you look at some of these incidents, traffic stops, somebody making eye contact, for God's sake, what does it take to stop this from happening? And violence or nonviolence, up until now, it simply has not worked. Police, for whatever sets of reasons, still feel empowered to take black life. And, you know, in several of these cases, it's not like anybody says, I had a conversation with somebody earlier today who said, well, maybe the guy went crazy in the van. There was more than one cop in the van as far as I knew. If you're a police officer, you're supposed to be trained in subduing people without, by the way, breaking their spines. But in Baltimore, that seemed an impossibility. Freddie Gray is dead. And if you want to talk about coverage of what's going on in Baltimore, there are those, and there are those media outlets, who have chosen to put Freddie Gray's life on the back burner here. And instead, decide to go after the thugs, the hoodlums the rioters, the people that are creating all this havoc, to the point that for the first time in Major League Baseball history, a game was played in an empty stadium. First time. And you know how old baseball is. People are frustrated. People don't think anything works. When you don't think anything works, and especially if you're young, and don't have any kind of lens of experience, you express your rage the one way you think you can. That's not condoning it. But I'm telling you, the, the sad part is the people that do this, whether they be opportunists or people who are genuinely outraged, the people who do this don't seem to realize that it's been done before and it has not worked. And, you know, again, the flip side, Black Lives Matter, wonderful organization. Having people out in the street protesting, keeping this in the national consciousness to the point that Hillary Clinton, of all people, talked about police conduct today at Columbia University. It's amazing because, and again, I have the lens of experience here. I have asked presidential candidates their thoughts 
about police brutality going back 20 years. They don't want to. They don't want to talk about it. Didn't matter if they were Democrats, Republicans, Tories, or Whigs. It wasn't part of the conversation, the national conversation. Well, it is now. And maybe the people that protest nonviolently feel they should get the credit for it. Maybe the people that have been uprising in Baltimore and Ferguson and other places and have been violent, maybe they think they should get credit for it. But there's no guarantee, ladies and gentlemen, that this is not going to continue. And it's not about all cops. It really isn't. But it's about a system that seems to exonerate conduct that takes black life unnecessarily. You know, if you were talking about, you know, a black guy who had a gun, who pulled it on a cop or whatever, that's one thing. But the numbers of unarmed black people, I mean, I know some of y'all like to say African-American. I say black people, whatever. The numbers are too high. And the numbers of police who have any level of accountability in this at all, in terms of criminal charges being brought, in terms of convictions being brought, doesn't happen. And I mean, literally, does not happen. Why doesn't it happen? I mean, if you look at it dispassionately, they couldn't even convict George Stinkin Zimmerman. And that's sad. And, you know, people can focus on the violence and the thugs and the criminal conduct and how come, where are their parents? You know, you saw that lady that wailed on her son. Just like my mother used to wail on me. I was a little younger. But if I got out of line, I did something stupid. You know, my mother would wail on me just like she did. In public and without apology. But that's not going to solve it either. You know, and, 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 you know, some commentators, they see a woman do this. Well, where's the father? I don't know where the father is, and I don't care where the father is. The bottom line here is that asking where the father is takes away from the fact that an unarmed black man had his spine broken. And you can, you can put together task forces, you can do this, you can do that, until you're blue in the face. But that reality has to be confronted. And not just by black people. And I will say, and this is kind of interesting to me, it's not just black people who I think are starting to see what's going on here. Maybe it's going to take a critical mass and continuous protests, however they are manifested. And again, I'm not condoning. I'm the most nonviolent human being you ever want to meet. I am not a violent guy. Well, somebody messes with my family, but that's different. I get a blind spot there. But I'm not a violent person. But I also understand very clearly why People And Baltimore has its own individual, unique history. See, because the police chief is black, the mayor is black, 
Baltimore is a you know has to be almost half black city, maybe more than half. So you might figure it wouldn't happen here. It did. It did. And uh, as my friend Eutrice Lee pointed out, you know, they had the Baltimore Symphony playing in one part of town in front of a large mass of white people. In the meantime, black folks are on another side of town. They didn't want to hear any music. At least they didn't want to hear any symphony. They didn't want to hear anything classical. So, you know, at some juncture, we have to confront. We have to confront. As Americans, why black life seems to be so cheap, seems to be taken so cheaply. And, you know, that opens the door for people. Oh, what about black-on-black crime? Don't you know that? And nobody ever says it. Well, people do. Black people talk about crime in the black community all the time because black people don't like crime. Law-abiding black citizens do not want to walk around in fear. I don't care whether it's East or West Baltimore or Brownsville in Brooklyn. They don't want to walk around in fear. They don't want to walk around acting as though they may have to pack an illegal gun because they walk through a neighborhood at night and are worried about somebody rolling up on them. I've seen that fear up close and personal. At some juncture, this has to be confronted. Now, again, police have a particular set of duties. They have things that they are charged with doing in terms of protecting the public. And nobody wants to say, well, you know, take the rest of the, you know, the rest of the year off. Don't bother. It's not about that. They got 2,000 National Guard on the street in Baltimore. That always makes me nervous because I remember Kent State and Jackson State, where white kids and black kids ended up getting killed a long time ago now. I don't know if any of those kids on the streets in Baltimore know that history, which is not their fault. It's our fault. We don't pass it on. But at some juncture, those kids are demanding better of us, not just of the Baltimore Police Department, not even just elected officials, not just police chiefs, not even individual cops. They want better from us. And I don't know why we're not capable of giving it to them. Better figure something out. Because, and, you know, I I used to say this when I worked in terrestrial radio. And I would feel bad every time I said it. You know, when there were different cases that would go on. I was an intern when Clifford Glover was killed. 1972, Randolph Evans, 1974. And as these things continue, and as there was virtually no accountability on the part of the police, you say to yourself, how long is it going to be before it happens again? How long indeed is it going to be before it happens again? It's 16 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. I'm hoping we get our guest Les Payne up momentarily because Les, you know, Les pulls no punches. That's why I love him. The man pulls no punches. Never has. 
He is an amazing journalist, a brilliant, and I mean absolutely brilliant thinker. You know, of course, not, and I'm sure you know this by now, not all journalists are thinkers. Some are, but not all. And right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to our microphones the distinguished Pulitzer Prize winner, Mr. Les Payne. Les, how you doing, my friend? Good afternoon. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. But, uh, you know, Les, I'm troubled by the fact that in Baltimore, Maryland, we see played out a situation that se- it, it, it seems never-ending. It seems like violent protests don't accomplish anything, and neither do nonviolent protests accomplish anything. Yeah. How do we get out of this quagmire? Well, I, I think... You're right. I mean, the question is, what's new here? And and the point you're making is that police brutality, even the killing and uh, what, although we can't call it murder because they they don't get trials by and large, uh, but certainly they're killing innocent and unarmed uh, black men uh, has been going on. So what's new here? I think what's new here, I think if we pull back a little bit from Baltimore uh, and look at the pattern, and, and that's not. We don't have to go and look at every single incident because that that that'll take up more time than both of us have. But <laughs> but but I think if we just take two examples, three examples, because I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, uh, in fact, Dwayne Wickham, who writes a column for USA Today. But at any rate, uh, if you look at Baltimore, Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, let's pick a city. Oh, let's say New York City. <laughs> okay, we had these three incidents. We've had these three incidents of, of, of black uh, men in various ages being essentially killed uh, by police under circumstances uh, that uh, are beyond questionable uh, and, and, and suspect. Uh, and so but let's pull back and look at the cities. On the one hand, uh, we had Ferguson, where the population of Ferguson is uh, 30% white and 67% African-Americans, and we up here in New York said, well, you know, they don't have any black officials and only one city councilman and then three cops out of 50. All right, and we look at New York City, and New York City, not unlike Ferguson, has a non-Hispanic white population of 33%, a third, mm-hmm. and there's no mayor, uh, little real power in the city council, and no, no uh, little real uh, power among the police in terms of people who are running it. And I think in Baltimore, you look at Baltimore, similarly, the uh, uh, white population in Baltimore is 28%. So the white population is uh, a third, roughly, or less, in all of these three cities, which has had these three major incidents. Now, if we look at their power arrangements, okay, Ferguson, very little political power. They've not taken the opportunity uh, to uh, put black uh, officials uh, in power uh, in Baltimore, uh, you have, though, in Baltimore, New York City, similarly, by the way, you could argue. But in Baltimore, when you look at the situation in Baltimore, they have a black mayor. They have a black police chief. They have a majority black city council. They have a black chief prosecutor. So the question becomes, wait a minute, what, what about all this political power that's supposed to uh, begin to change the culture uh, within, say, the police department and the government? What I would say is that when you look at Baltimore in particular, uh, among these three cities, that you have Baltimore, which is, you know, the voters have done their job. They mm-hmm. put these folks, uh, African-Americans, in positions of power. And But I would say the problem here is that these Baltimore police uh, uh, officials, the dominant 
officialdom of Baltimore has failed to ch- change the racially disparate practice of jailing blacks quicker, sentencing them longer. And so it is a failure on their part to change the culture. And I have to go to a broader point because this, unfortunately, uh, Mark, is a pattern. Mm-hmm. African Americans get into these positions, whether I'm the, you know, I'm the only journalist, you know, covering the White House. I'm the only, uh, as Malcolm used to say, I'm the only, only black out here in this neighborhood. <laughs> and they get into these positions and they do not change the culture. This is a failure. And, and, and it's not a black thing. It is an American thing. Because if it's a newspaper you're talking about, if you change, if you break the cultural pattern, the pre-existing pattern of, of, of racial exclusion, which uh, a pioneer in African-American uh, would change, uh, then you have, uh, it seems to me, you're duty-bound to, ch- to change that culture. Now, there is, and, and, and this, is, this is the point I'm, I'm making, there is a hard-wired position that African-Americans, by and large, do not attempt to change the pre-existing racial culture that they enter into, whether it's a profession or craft or, or, or an occupation. And I was down, uh, I, I covered a convention with my wife, who was a very powerful uh, group of African women. I won't name their names, the links. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they had a regional meeting up in, 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 in um, uh, uh, Connecticut, and, and it's a fine organization, and this is, has nothing to do with the links, but it has something to do with what's called the connecting links, which are the African-American uh, men generally, by and large, you know, who are, who are husbands. I'm one of them. I was there, and we were talking in various sessions, you know, and one of the sessions, uh, it came up, and they talked about, you know, as, as these things go, about this very condition, and it turned my stomach terribly to hear that the prevailing opinion and, and these, these, these African-Americans, by the way, are achievers. They are judges, they're lawyers, they're entrepreneurs, they're business people. These are very, very successful, I would say, even overachievers by and large. Mm-hmm. And there was a prevailing notion among them that in terms of the police, that they did not see a responsibility of the police, or the, uh, however many they are, changing the culture. In fact, the term that I heard, get this, and you may have heard it, was that blue tops black yeah so black cops end up going into an existing blue culture without any thought about changing it essentially that's right because in other words they're told that that this is a quote quasi-military organization we have our way of doing things and uh, this is the way it is and so they buy into this notion and, and, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not a hypothetical or theoretical, because I had a meeting, uh, you heard, I think I talked, mentioned it on your show the last time, about three yeah. years ago at Abyssinia Church, where we had the top-ranking African-American police. Uh, we had this thing called the 100 Black Men and Police Who Care. Uh, this guy, Claxton, was there. We Mark had the head of one in New Jersey. Uh, Eric uh, was not there because, you know, he had gone on to bigger and better things now. Uh, mm-hmm. Eric Adams, who, who helped found uh, the 100 black men, law enforcement, who care. Uh, and, and when I told my brother John up in Connecticut about that, John said, there are 100 of them? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I said, John, wow. there are 3,500 African-American police officers on the force in New York, at least. And he was shocked that there would even be 100. And there may not very be a, well be 100 who care. But the point of the matter is that they organize 100 out of 3,400 uh, because it is an elite force. You know, we are the 100 who care. And we are, they call, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So I think 
but it fits the pattern if you follow my what I'm saying, mm-hmm. is that there is a notion, and there was a notion that was stated by the the heads of the 100 black men law enforcement in New York City who care, that they did not want to increase the numbers, that they bought into this false notion that blue tops black. And I would, I would buy into it, too, if it were fair, if they treated African-American men and women and children the way they treated uh, uh, whites, I would die. Okay, fine. But the point of the matter is they know that, number one, has been previously exclusionary. And believe me, no Irishman believes that. No Italian believes that. Because the Irish and the, and the Italians who went into those police departments, that police department in New York City, they changed that culture, which is yeah. to say that New York City over the years, we're talking 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they were drawing, we found, their criminals and their policemen from the same uh, ethnic source, Italians and Irish, and they, and, and, and they overlooked, and, and there was a, uh, you know, and, 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 and we find them cracking the heads of, of, of African Americans and looking the other way at the mob and some others by and large. So I think that uh, this really is a problem. This is not the only problem. But this is one of the problems. We've talked about the others on your show. But I think that there has to be some pressure and some understanding and some analysis and some pressure exerted for these African-Americans. If, if they're 11 or 12 or 14 percent of the police force in New York City, then uh, they should do something about that. You know, and, and I think that similarly in the, uh, in, in, in the prosecutor's office and on the city council and over in Brooklyn, if they're the borough president. So I think that these folks are not elected simply to go in there and, and, and take their seats. They're elected, you know, to, uh, to change the culture racially when it has been unfair. And I think that is a failure of African-American achievers when they go into these issues, these issues in Baltimore, in New York, and in Ferguson. Uh, now, as, as for Ferguson itself, your questions. <laughs> uh, no, I, you know what I, I wanted to ask you, uh, because I think this plays into it. Uh, the mayor of Baltimore uh, yeah. seems to have gotten some heat for not acting quickly enough. Uh, mayor Rawlings Blake, not acting quickly enough and not acting with enough force. And I've been around long enough to have heard this when David Dinkins was mayor. And it's somehow... Uh, get, I think the implication is, at least from where I sit, that what they're saying is, well, you're black, the people in the street are black, therefore you don't want to come down on them as hard as I, who may not be black, want you to. Or am I wrong? Well, I, I think that, you know, it, it's easy to blame the mayor, but the mayor does not control the police department. I think the mayor... Uh, and I don't know the exact way it works in Baltimore, but I do know the way it works in New York City. The mayor appoints a police commissioner. And mm-hmm. the, if the, uh, Mayor Dinkins has a responsibility to appoint a police commissioner, and I think he did in Ben, in, in ben uh, whatever his name was. Uh, yeah, Ben Ward. Uh, not simply because he's black, but someone who can identify and understand what the majority of the city is going through at the hands of this brutalizing police force that, that has this history of doing it against African Americans, though interestingly not enough Italian American, not against Italian Americans and Irish Americans, because they are the people who could, who, who set the tone of the culture in this police department in New York City. So I, I think that blaming the mayor is a cheap shot. Uh, because the mayor appoints a police chief, she should put pressure on the, her police commissioner. I think, though, uh, Baltimore also has a black uh, police chief. That yeah. black police chief, A, cannot stop an individual cop from doing such a thing, but he certainly can and still uh, 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 do 
punishment. And I understand that six of these policemen were suspended, but I mean, he has that. He has authority to suspend without pay, pending an investigation, pending court action, uh, pending a jury trial. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Les Payne is our guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning former editor at Newsday, great thinker. And Les, let me ask you this question, um, because uh, you know, in in uh, idle conversations I've had with people, uh, it seems to continually come up. Are these kids that have been out in the street, are they in fact thugs? No. Simply put, these are children, and we've all been in that position, whose parents, and uh, as I stated earlier, their uh, successful role models have failed them. In other words, it is ironic that the same uh, deficient level, the same uh, 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 Baltimore officialdom, which cannot prevent the police from brutalizing, and not just uh, Freddie Gray, but I'm talking about, you know, this is a long pattern. I think everyone admits that, even the police will admit that there's a long pattern. This is not a single incident, this is just but the latest incident. They arrested a seven-year-old African child for sitting on a dirt bike, as you recall, in Baltimore. Remember Mm -hmm. that? I do remember that, yeah. 2011. Uh, a seven-year-old child, you know, sitting on his... And they never would have done that to a, uh, a white kid. But anyway, laying seven years old, by the way. Uh, laying that aside, I think that their, their, their officialdom have, have failed them, and, and, and the reason I tried to, to lay out earlier, and I think their parents and their parents' generation has failed in the first instance to protect uh, uh, Freddie Gray, to protect them from a Freddie Gray incident. And then that same parent run out and try to tell them to put their hands in their pocket because they don't want them to be uh, a Freddie Gray when, when, when their responsibility is to make sure that the system does not uh, produce Freddie Gray uh, corpses. And not so much that, that, that the children should not be out protesting it. So, no, I, th- I think it's like someone who on the one instance kick you and on the other instance uh, uh, will not allow you to scream. Yeah, yeah. Your foot got, your, my foot got in the way of your face kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because uh, this kind of surprised me. Uh, Hillary Clinton was up at Columbia today, and yeah. she devoted a good part of her speech to trying to change some stuff that her husband implemented 20 years ago. Did you hear any of, of her uh, speech? Absolutely. I heard her speech, and it was cringing. Luckily, uh, there was a, 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 a Washington Post uh, uh, reporter who noted that, that this is the very strange same strategy. you know. But then again, the Clintons have been hoodwinking, double-dealing with African Americans all along. I mean, this is to me is one of the great mysteries as to how this uh, this double deal and duplicitous couple continue to hoodwink African Americans into thinking that they are on their side. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question but that this. And, and I took a group of African American journalists, uh, uh, commentary writers of the, of, of the Monroe Trotter Group, they call it the Trotter Group. We went and interviewed uh, uh, Bill Clinton when he was the president and asked him in the cabinet room. Why did you sign that omnibus crime bill, which continued to put out, dish out the punishment for Africa, for, for crack cocaine at 100 to 1 times the rate of, of powdered cocaine? Uh, the, the fact being that African Americans tended to use crack cocaine and white use powder. And, so, and, and also a mandatory five-year sentence. He signed that uh, into law. And he later, this sniveling 
excuse, you know, of, 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 of a libertarian, uh, not libertarian, but a liberal-minded, open-minded person said that, well, he, he said after, in fact, he said after down at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, after he got out of office, Clinton did, that he was sorry and that he was going to spend the rest of his life trying to make amends for it. Well, and now here's his wife. I mean, this is just a hustle mm, on, on, on Hillary Clinton's part. There's no question. I have no intention of doing anything except continuing to hustle black folks as they had, as they had from the time began. You know, I mean, African Americans uh, were responsible for electing him in, as, as, as him as governor, as president, and they're making millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars now because of the goodwill that the world thinks that they share with with African Americans. So it's a hustle. Very true, very true. I heard her. I heard her loud and clear. And I agree with you absolutely that she absolutely is now arguing against position that her husband signed into law. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I mean, and those laws, and, and they filled up uh, federal prisons under, this, under this, these, these laws. Yeah, and, and I mean, I never thought I'd hear the words mass incarceration come out of her mouth. I was, I was surprised to see it's, uh, it's like she had been talking to Bertha Lewis or something. Well, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be surprised if we, if we know the duplicitous nature of of of, of, of uh, or pattern of behavior of both Clintons. Yeah, yeah, very true. Let's uh, let me let, let me uh, end this by asking you: um, Police culture is a difficult thing to change. It's something that maybe young people in the street. Uh, understand intuitively, but, you know, can't even start to think how they can change it. And it was interesting, you know, when you talk about Hillary Clinton, when I talked about Hillary Clinton, the interesting thing is, you know, they interviewed some people in Baltimore and they said, look, Hillary can come down here, Obama can come down. It's not going to change anybody's mind. But what do you think uh, needs to happen so that young people understand how, or maybe not how, but the necessity of changing police culture. I think I think they get it. I think they know that it needs changing. But you're right; they don't know quite how to go about it. Uh, I think that, and they don't have the means to do it. That is why they react emotionally and go out and 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 demonstrate and 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 conduct acts of violence. You know, uh, and I agree that this is not necess- this is not the intelligent way to do it. But it's it's the only thing available to them. It is like, for instance, if the like in the in, in, in the Rodney King case, when those four policemen and Simi Valor were released, uh, and so the whole system had gone through. They beaten. They the kids of that generation had seen him beaten time and repeatedly again by those police officers. They saw it on videotape, and this is the new thing: is that now we have cell phone videos. And they saw that repeatedly, time and time again. It went through the entire process. And the generation watched that. They believed in the system, waited for the system to work. They had a change of venue. And when he was released, they did the only thing they can. They took to the streets, and they created the greatest riot, as it were, or civil disturbance in, in the history of the country out in L.A. So I think that these, these kids, uh, they don't have... But the point is, how can African Americans change it is that it's very simple. And, and, and it's what we open with here. And that is that it is a duty, and it can very easily be done. Those African-American policemen within that police force who are in there, they don't have to be 100% of the force, and they don't necessarily have to be the chief, but it helps if, if, if they have authority, is that they have to change that culture which treats, which arrests African-American, whether they're turnstile jumping or, 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 or riding a bicycle illegally or whether they're smoking uh, pot in the, in, in the front or back seat of their car. 
they are arrested in New York City five times quicker than whites are doing the exact same thing. True. Black yeah. officers have to change that. They have to, from day one they get on that force, they have to change that. And I, and I told a, a police officer years ago out in... Uh, 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 on Long Island, you know, where I, when when I was definitely working to change the culture, I, I mean, I, I worked against changing the racist culture at Newsday. When I got there, I told them right on day one, this is a racist Newsday or racist organization. We got to change this, you know. And and so I think that police officers, and I told a uh, police officer, I never won't forget his name, is Ainsley Bean, police officer in in in, in Central Islip, you know, the island, mm-hmm. and. I told him, I said, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, Newsday, and I, I stand behind every word that I write. I said, but what you do as a police officer, and he was a detective, I said, you need to change that police culture. And he said, what do you mean? I said, what I mean is simply this, and this is to answer your question as to how they can do it. I said, when you go into that precinct and you hear black teenagers screaming back then because the police officer in the back room has put a telephone book up against his head and is beating him with a baton. I said, you ought to stop that and you ought to do something about it. And do you know, Mark, what he did, what his response was? What? He started crying in his bar that he owned because he knew he hadn't done it. And these hundred black men in law enforcement who care haven't done it either. Instead of going around talking to black teenagers about keeping your hand in your pocket and put your hand and reassure the cop that you are no threat to him, they should be inside of those precincts changing that culture. Les Payne, as always, great to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for your insight. Be in touch, Mark. You take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Les Payne, he is, of course, the Pulitzer Prize-winning former editor of Newsday, and he worked very, very hard when he was there to change what he said in this conversation was a racist culture. 22 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock, we got a lot of other things to talk about. The Supreme Court talking about both lethal injection and same-sex marriage. We've got uh, some issues with the NYPD and how they uh, ended up questioning people who were arrested in the uh, protests around Eric Garner. Uh, Bernie Sanders talking about running for the presidency. Does this uh, perhaps have something nipping at Hillary Clinton's left flank? And of course, you can give us a call. 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with the rest of the program. Thanks for being here.
20 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. So, um, and, and this kind of ties into what's going on in Baltimore as well. Because Loretta Lynch has been sworn in and is now the nation's attorney general. And, you know, she worked her way up at the Justice Department. Uh, she started as a prosecutor. She was U.S. attorney twice. And it was the first time in nearly two centuries that a United States attorney was elevated directly to the position of attorney general. So it's uh, good to hear that she's there. However, and this is a big however, and I said this last week, it's going to be very interesting to see how she handles civil rights investigations where police are found not guilty at trial in the killing of unarmed black people. That's going to be her her cross to bear, her legacy, long-term as attorney general. What does she do about that? Because, you know, like, that's her gig. Harriet from Bayside is on the line. Harriet, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine. How are you? Doing great. I would like to speak to you about something on a slightly lighter note. Please do. Okay. Curtis Sliwa. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> yes. You're talking now, about Melissa Mark Viverito, the remarks he made about her? So he made a remark about her. So I read in uh, today's Daily News that he's getting fired from New York One. And Is I he? think that's what I heard on, uh, that's what I read in today's paper. In today's paper? And I didn't see that. Uh, uh, it's in interesting. I mean, news. I know Curtis a very, very long time. Yeah. I um, consider him a friend, but, yes. you know, he, he, he clowns. I mean, that's what he does. Yeah. That's he just what doesn't I'm have saying. the face paint and, the, and the, you know, the, the red nose. And what I'm saying is this is political correctness gone amok. Oh, you, you have a problem with his getting fired. Absolutely. Well, now, let me ask you something, Harriet. Because yeah. uh, corporate media outlets always yes. respond to pressure. And yeah, most I of the tried time, to write they, New York One a nasty letter. But see, here's the thing. Yes. If New York One's advertisers, and, and by the way, that segment was a pretty popular segment. But yeah. if New York One's advertisers say, you know, Slee was crossed the line this time, you know, it's a problem that they're hearing a lot from the public, then they feel moved to act. And, you know, uh, nobody wants to see anybody lose a gig, but I would submit to you that it really wasn't what Curtis said. It was the reaction to what Curtis said. If you and look at what you know, happened with Don Imus and you know, other people, the they people ended up getting fired after pressure from advertisers. And the people who reacted to it um, are the same political the same so-called political correctness, self-righteous, holier-than-thou people who got Anthony Weiner kicked out of the Senate. Who? Um, well, I, I'm not sure, Harriet, that that's true because Anthony Weiner ended up getting—he wasn't in the Senate; he was in the House. I mean, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yeah, the but House. I mean, the thing is, he got kicked out after Nancy Pelosi went after. Well, that's because uh, Nancy Pelosi, and I don't think I didn't write her a nasty letter about it. Uh, no, I know you did. But see, 
In this case, I even wrote the president no the Nancy letter about it. There's no Nancy Pelosi at New York one. That was if no. you look at the timeline between what he said and when mm-hmm. they fired him, which I guess was today. Um, what you find very quickly is, and understand very quickly is, this is an advertiser thing. This if the advertiser hadn't be, said anything, he'd still be there. What I heard was that um, people were uh, going to demonstrate against him. Yeah, so what? <laughs> they were going to pick it. People don't worry one. about demonstrations, but they yeah, do they were, worry about a loss of advertising revenue. That they worry about. This is ridiculous. Well, see, it, it's ridiculous unless the money's coming out of your pocket. I don't think the money, I don't think anybody's complaining about that. And he didn't say it on New York One. He said something about it on New York One. He did. All right, maybe he did. But he said more on his radio program. And if you don't like his, down radio, on his program, radio program... But I think the original thing he said was on New York One. Then if I... Then he didn't say anything wrong. Well, he said he had a thing for Melissa Mark Viverito. Yeah, but um, still. That is, uh, for a guy that's supposed to be a serious commentator, that's ultra-high-frequency tacky. However, yeah. you have to ask yourself, is Curtis Lewa actually presenting himself as a serious commentator? I would say he the answer is no. No. And besides having a thing for somebody, that's no big deal. Well, no, it's no big deal, but it's stupid if you say it. You know, when are people going to grow up? What I found interesting was that that um, that story lasted a long time. And, you know, there's another part to this. Oh. Um, who, what what paper did you see this in? I Now I get the New York Daily News. Daily News. You know where you uh, didn't see it? I, yes, I get the daily news on my Kindle every morning. No, no, I understand. But, Harriet, where didn't you see it? You didn't see it in the New York Post. Why? I don't read the New York Post. I know, but it wasn't. they didn't cover it. Yeah, then why is the daily news covering it? Well, why is the New York Post not covering it? Because uh, it has to have been two, three weeks ago. Oh, I know why the New York Post uh, didn't cover it. Huh? I know why the New York Post didn't cover it and the Daily News did. Tell me why. He writes op-eds for the New York Post. That's right. So, you know, this this is how the media operates. The Daily News will not miss an opportunity to tweak somebody they think is affiliated with the New York Post, and vice versa. Mm. That's the nature of the beast. Listen, I got to run here, but thanks a lot for calling, all right? You take care. Now, I got to tell you, and our number again is 888-874-4888. This Bernie Sanders thing, I am very excited about. I mean, if not Elizabeth Warren... Bernie Sanders is the next best person. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make my best effort. I promise you who are listening to this program, I'm going to make my best effort to talk to Bernie. I've talked to him many, many times in the past. He's the uh, senator from Vermont by way of Brooklyn, because if you hear him talk, he's got the, one of the thickest Brooklyn accents outside the borough. But here's the thing. Bernie Sanders has positions on issues 
that I think are, you know, all of the people who say, oh, Hillary Clinton this, Hillary Clinton that, Hillary Clinton the other. Bernie Sanders should be your man. He should be. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that there are going to be people who say, well, Bernie Sanders can't win. He can't be president. All he's doing is trying to move Hillary Clinton to the left. Well, you know, first of all, I, uh, I take issue with the notion that a distinguished United States senator like Bernie Sanders cannot win the presidency. I, I got a problem with that, pure and simple, because I believe that Bernie Sanders, if he's given the requisite media exposure, if people hear him and see him, I think he's got about four mil in his Senate bank account, which he can transfer to a presidential run. That would be great. But the bottom line is, and apparently he's supposed to make an informal announcement tomorrow, and then he's supposed to uh, actually announce up in Burlington, Vermont, later next month, which would be May. Now, he calls himself a democratic socialist. I got to tell you, this is a game, I hate to use that term, game changer. It's one of those hackneyed cliches. But this is one of those situations where... You know, somebody who might hold their nose and vote for Hillary Clinton suddenly has an alternative. And I'm not at all sure that the Clinton camp isn't going to try and squash him like a grape. And they're going to have to do something. Maybe, just maybe, Hillary Clinton read the paper and saw that Bernie was thinking about running, and that's why she talked so much about the prison industrial complex and all of the uh, mass incarceration and all that stuff she talked about up at Columbia. Or maybe she didn't. Maybe maybe she was planning on talking about that all along. But even if it's only about moving Hillary Clinton in a particular direction ideologically, it's worth it. It's worth it. But see, I, I know how people sometimes, I've covered a lot of political campaigns. I know how a lot of people think. And they're going to think, ah, he can't win, Bernie Sanders. And see, the right wing takes the democratic socialist thing and they run with it. He's a democratic socialist. So what? And by the way, he makes no apologies for being a democratic socialist, nor should he. Uh, He's been traveling in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, looking to gauge some interest in his candidacy. But... You know, the New York Times says, while considered a long shot for the Democratic nomination, Mr. Sanders could be another voice drawing Mrs. Clinton to the left because of his progressive views on trade, health care, and corporate lobbying. Speaking of trade, this TPP thing, which I'm hearing an awful lot about, and thank God, I'm hearing a lot of it on the progressive radio network. PRN has been all over the TPP like a cheap suit. We covered it when I first started this program. I need to get into more depth with it. I do know that uh, there was a rumor that it went, uh, I don't know if it went through committee or wherever it went. When they got ready to consider it, most of them had never seen the entire bill before, which is, hmm, how best to put that? Stupid? Yeah, let's call it stupid. Why not? The Supreme Court, headline, New York Times, gay marriage arguments divide Supreme Court justices. They seem to be deeply divided over same-sex marriage. 
But Justice Anthony Kennedy, whose vote is probably crucial according to the Times, gave gay rights advocates reasons for optimism based on the tone and substance of his question. I think they're going to affirm gay marriage. It's come too far. They're trying, you know, those who would try and, and, and alter this or beat it down or whatever, they're trying to close the barn door after the horses run the derby. There are same-sex couples all over America, as there should be. But uh, even Roberts was asking a couple of interesting, interesting questions. Um, and, I, you know, I really do not see, uh, like, a compelling argument on the other side. I just don't. That's just me, though. And, you know, they, the, the, the sacredness of marriage and this and that and the other. And the arguments today were over same-sex marriage bans, I guess, was it today or yesterday? It was over same-sex marriage bans in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. Uh, I just, I, I, I don't understand. I don't, un- Michigan, Ohio, what are you thinking? It would seem to me the state of Michigan would be better suited to fixing its economic problems rather than trying to, you know, pass amendments or whatever it is they do to ban same-sex marriage. I've, I've never been able to figure out what it is that scares people about gay marriage. You know, now Roberts did suggest that the woman who was arguing in favor of same-sex marriage was asking the court to do something radical. Quote, you're not seeking to join the institution. You're seeking to change what the institution is. Whatever. Whatever. You know, and to hold marriages of same-sex couples hostage to what he calls, or actually says a a fast-moving societal debate. Quote, one of the things that's truly extraordinary about this whole issue is how quickly has been the acceptance of your position across the broad elements of society. Even Scalia agreed with that. I, I get a, a sense that it's going to be five to four, and it's going to be uphill. That's just my sense of it. I don't know. I'm not a, you know, uh, a prophet. I'm just thinking that's probably where it's going to end up. Now, the New York Times has a very interesting article about the lengths to which the NYPD is going to try and glean information from people who get, who actually got busted during protests related to the death of Eric Garner. Uh, they profile one woman in a holding cell, and uh, apparently two detectives asked how she knew about the demonstrations, what social media she used to keep track of them, and whether she was part of a protest group. One detective asked whether she had ties to terrorists. The reason why they're doing this, which I think is patently illegal, but I'm not a lawyer, but the reason why they're doing this is because these protests have outrun them. I mean, you know, the NYPD may have a, a Facebook page or, uh, you know, some, some Twitter feed or whatever, but the fact is the protesters who are organizing on social media have lacked them. And as a result, 
they sit up and they try and get this information from people they arrest. Uh, and they actually have a debriefing form that they use, that they are using. And an awful lot of people, including an awful lot of people I respect deeply, uh, think they're going too far. So, you know, somebody like Eugene O'Donnell, who I, used to, again, used to interview, I think is a good, good guy, when he says, you know, uh, he, these questions, quote, seem to go beyond ordinary criminal debriefing or ordinary arrest processing. And how will they use this information? So uh, just something to uh, keep, you know, uh, keep in mind, keep it in your head. Um, there's a guy who was written about in the New York Times who I know. His name is Garland Roberts. He's a war veteran, fought in Vietnam. He's 76 years old now. I did not know this. The last time I saw him was a few years ago at an Occupy Wall Street protest because he was there virtually every day. But, and again, the Times describes him as a veteran and a longtime activist. He's waging a singular battle against a developer uh, for a piece of property that contains a horse stable, a a horse stable uh, and a horse barn in the East Bronx. He's living there. He has it apparently very, very, very heavily fortified, and uh, he's fighting that fight. Garland is is not everybody's cup of tea. Sometimes, you know, he'll talk and he'll, like, twist you into knots trying to understand what he's saying, but he's he's fighting that fight. So congratulations to him. The MTA, which just raised fares 4% last month, now say they may have to add another 15% to 317 a ride. How in the deuce are they going to end up processing $3.17 a ride? Be careful. They may be raising that before you know it. A quick to the ridiculous, there's a, a, an agriculture commissioner in Texas by the name of Sid Miller. Never elect somebody or appoint somebody named Sid. Sidney, yeah, but Sid. Texas's 10-year ban on deep fryers and soda machines in public schools will disappear if he gets his way. <coughs> Apparently, he thinks kids <coughs> excuse me, ought to have access to fried foods depending on the school district. He said, I believe each school district, not, <coughs> not the state or federal government, should decide what foods are offered to students. Excuse me. Mm. Sorry about that. It's about giving back local control and allowing each school district to make the best decision for their community. And with that, I leave you because my voice is going. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead. (laughs) 